Well, good evening, everyone. It is good to be with you tonight. It is uh, the first Wednesday night of December, and we are starting a new series next week. Um, and we've already actually wrapped up uh, the series we were doing. So we kind of have this, uh, this week that's kind of free in between the series that we just finished and the series that we are about to start. So I figured, you know what, let's, uh, let's look at one more aspect of some of the things that we've been talking about on Wednesday nights. If you have, or maybe you haven't been with us on Wednesday nights, uh, we've been talking about current events and, and kind of using that as a metaphor for the cultural currents that run through our culture or any culture, that there are, there are currents that we have to try to avoid being carried away by these currents, that if we're going to follow Jesus, then it's going to require us to swim against the currents at times. It's going to, it's going to cause us and it's going to necessitate us recognizing the fact that there are cultural currents that we have to avoid and what direction we have to swim. And there's not just one current that's running. There's oftentimes many currents running in different directions, forces that are pulling us in one direction or in the other. And as followers of Jesus, we have to avoid being swept away by any of those cultural currents, and we have to learn to follow Jesus. And we've talked about all kinds of things. We've talked about uh, race, racism. We've talked about politics. We've talked some about sexuality. Um, But we focused a lot on things like love and unity. We focused on patience and understanding, listening to one another, being patient with one another, all of these very important things that we need to embrace and practice if we are going to be followers of Jesus in this culture, in the United States, or wherever you live, uh, in this time period, or in whatever time comes, and however the culture changes. These things are timelessly true, and this is how we have to live and behave and act and think if we're going to be followers of Jesus. But one of the things that we, we haven't really spent a lot of time talking about, and I thought this might be a good way to wrap up this current event series, and, and then maybe even segue to our next series about discipleship and following Jesus and looking at his example and doing what he taught us to do, is the area of discipline. There's a time and a place for telling others, no, you should not be doing that. Stop doing that. Uh, there's even a time to punish might seem like a very harsh word, but, but I, I very much mean that. I think that we'll see that borne out in the text tonight, that there's a time when the church collectively should punish those who are walking in a way that isn't consistent with the gospel. In other words, they're being carried along by these cultural currents, and there is a time and a place for the church to say no. You have to choose. You can either follow the culture, you can either do what the world is doing, or you can follow Jesus, but you can't have it both ways. If you're going to be part of this church community, if you're going to be part of this family, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, then you have to live this way. There comes a time where we have to hold each other accountable, where we have to hold each other to a certain standard of behavior, and there comes a time when we have to tell each other no. You can't live and act that way. And so I want to talk about that just a little bit this evening and talk about who we need to discipline and how we need to discipline. Um, and this obviously is a, gives us some, some solid things to think about. So if you have your Bible, we will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 starting in verse 1, and the text will be here on the screen as well. Paul 
is writing to obviously the church in Corinth, and he says that it's reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Now, we've actually talked about this particular uh, incident several times in this series uh, about this man who was living with or sleeping with his father's wife, and that's what Paul is talking about here. He says that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So there's a couple things there that I want us to notice. It's interesting to me that he says that they are being arrogant, that they're not ashamed of the fact that there is a man who is sexually immoral in such a way that even even the pagans, even those that are unbelievers, wouldn't tolerate that kind of behavior in their community. But for some reason, the Christians in Corinth, the church is tolerating this in their community. And they're not just tolerating, they're, they're sort of boasting about it. And they're sort of arrogant about it in some way. But he says not only that this person who's doing such a thing should be removed from among you, and we'll talk about that in a second, but I think it's significant there in verse 2, he says, Ought you not rather to, what? Mourn. Ought you not rather to mourn? As I was thinking about this passage today, it really struck me that oftentimes we tend to think that the two possible reactions to sin are either apathy or anger. Either you don't care about it or you're angry about it. And we tend to think that the righteous thing to do is to be angry about it. In fact, we even call it righteous indignation. But the problem is that you and I aren't righteous. And so our righteous indignation tends to be self-righteous indignation. Paul doesn't say, ought you not rather to be angry? He doesn't encourage them to be angry about this man's sin. In fact, I don't think that anger is the right sort of reaction to this sin at all. He tells them that they ought to mourn. There's a big difference between being sad and being mad. And Paul tells them that they should be sad about it, not mad about it. See, sadness perceives a loss. And all through this text, you're going to see that it's almost like this man has died metaphorically, they need to have a funeral for him because he's died. He has died to the community. And that should elicit a response of sadness, of mourning. Sadness recognizes a loss. Anger isn't about losing someone that we love. Anger is about perceiving a threat that needs to be fought. Paul doesn't want them to perceive this man as a threat but wants them to perceive the loss that has happened. So you think sometimes that we're sad when we're concerned for someone and we're mad when we're concerned about them. Do we see the difference? We're sad when we're concerned for them, when we want what's best for them. We're mad when we're just concerned about them. We're just concerned about what they're doing. Particularly, we, we are usually angry when we think that what they're doing is somehow going to negatively affect me. And so we get angry at people when what they're doing might negatively affect us. And so we get mad at sinners or we get mad at people that are doing things that they ought not to be doing. And we get angry with them, but we're not sad for them. 
We're not concerned for them. We're just angry that somehow their behavior might affect us. That's not the right reaction. Paul isn't saying, hey, you need to be mad about this. You need to be angry at them. We get angry when we're afraid that someone's behavior is going to negatively affect us. And then on the other extreme, we get apathetic when we don't think it will negatively affect us. When we say, ah, this, it doesn't bother me. They can do whatever they want to. If this guy wants to be with his father's wife, then, you know, none of my business. And we get apathetic when we think that doesn't affect me at all. But we get sad when we are genuinely concerned for someone's well-being. When we say, so it should break their heart, and it doesn't. They're not angry about it, and they shouldn't be angry about it. They're, they're apathetic about it. They don't care what he's doing. And Paul says they ought to be sad about it. They ought to mourn about it. But let's get to this idea of the discipline. He says, let him be removed from among you. And I think we, we kind of have to understand that Paul lived in a what's called an honor-shame culture. Uh, and in honor-shame culture, and there's still lots of honor-shame cultures, our culture here doesn't tend to be an honor-shame culture, although we have certain areas where we have that aspect. Uh, but an honor-shame culture, nothing is more valued than belonging to a community. Nothing is more valued than belonging. To be a part of the community, to be honored by the community, that is of the utmost importance to someone in an honor-shame community. And shame, we tend to think about shame and guilt as synonymous, but there's a difference between shame and guilt. I like to say that guilt, guilt says, I've done something wrong. Shame says, I don't belong. Guilt is about doing something wrong. Shame is about not belonging. So when we, when we know we're guilty, we say, I know I've done something wrong. Shame says, I know that I don't belong. And so when someone is, is removed from the community, it brings shame upon them. It, they're ashamed because they recognize, I don't belong here anymore, or I'm being told I don't belong here anymore. Um, we could look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, 14 and 15. Paul says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, though but warn him as a brother. See, that's, that's where we have to remember this, that this kind of discipline that says at some point, if somebody is unwilling to participate, if somebody is unwilling to be a follower of Jesus, if somebody is unwilling to do what they're supposed to do and be who they're supposed to be, then at some point you have to remove them as a group, as the church family, you have to remove them from among you so that they are ashamed of their behavior so that they recognize, I can't keep doing this and still belong to this church family. I can't belong to this community if I'm going to behave in this way. And so Paul says they, they need to feel ashamed because of what they've done. But don't treat them as an enemy. Treat them as a brother. That in order for discipline to be discipline, then it has to be rooted in brotherly love. That brotherly love has to pre-exist discipline. <laughs> it's the only way this sort of discipline works is if there is some sort of love and relationship and commitment and community that predates, that precedes the discipline. <laughs> That's part of the problem that we have in 21st century 
Christianity, especially in the United States, is that sometimes the church is just something we do on Sundays, something we do sometimes. But when it's your family, when this is your people, when this is your community, when this is everything to you, where belonging to this community is everything, when the community says, if you continue to behave this way and you continue to do these things, you can no longer belong to this family, then you recognize that you have a very serious choice to make. Either you choose to go along these currents that you've been swimming in, and go the way of the world, or you choose to go the way of Jesus and belong to this community. But he says, when you discipline someone, don't treat them as an enemy. They're not an enemy to be fought. They're a brother to be loved. That the intention in disciplining them, the intention of the discipline is for them to be saved, to treat them as a brother. And really, you might say that discipline without love Discipline without brotherly love, discipline without relationship, is just abusive. There's no place for disciplining someone or punishing someone or forcing somebody to behave in a certain way when there's no relationship there, when it's not founded in and rooted in community and relationship. Otherwise, that's just abusive. Look at verse 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now again, it's really easy for us to read these passages and read them with sort of a tone of anger, a tone of wrath, a tone of indignation. But I think it's more right to read them with the tone that Paul himself laid out. And that's a tone of mourning, a tone of grief, a tone of sadness. Paul isn't angry. He's not mad. He's disappointed. He's sad. He's heartbroken that this man would behave in such a way and that the church would be boastful about it, tolerant of it, accepting of it. And so it breaks his heart and he's sad and he calls them to together as an assembly, as a group with the authority, with his authority and with the authority of Jesus Christ to discipline them. But again, notice what he says in verse five, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The goal of discipline is repentance and salvation. So the discipline can stop whenever a person decides, no, I would rather have Jesus than I would this lifestyle. I would rather have Jesus than I would this behavior. I would rather follow Jesus and be part of this community than I would this, whatever this is. And so as soon as a person makes that choice and repents, then the goal has been achieved. That's what we're trying to accomplish here. But so often we approach these things with anger, with wrath, with righteous indignation, where it's not about loving a brother and bringing him back into the family around the table. It's a matter of punishing him and making him feel bad and distancing ourselves or showing how how righteous we are because we don't put up with that kind of behavior here or, or whatever the case may be. 
But those things are not the goal at all. The goal is that person's salvation. See, again, that's the difference between anger that's just concerned about about someone and sadness that's concerned for them. They ought to be concerned for him and not just concerned about him. So often we treat people as if they're an issue rather than as a a person. Look at verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, a little leaven, that's yeast, leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is, again, so many of these things are very challenging for us to understand in 21st century American Christianity. Because so often we are, we are very individualistic with the way that we think. We tend to think of ourselves as just individuals. But in Jesus, you are more than an individual. In Jesus, I am more than an individual. In Jesus, we are more than individuals. We are individuals, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. We can make our own individual decisions and choices. But we are more than that. We are a collective. We are, as Paul puts it here, one lump of dough. One lump of dough. Now think about some things like, I always think about a puddle of water or a pond of water or a body of water of any size. It's made up of a lot of little drops of water. But when they're all combined, you you can't separate them. They're, They're all just together. They've become one body. And the same is true with with dough. It's all one big lump. And Paul says a little bit of leaven within that lump of dough leavens the whole thing. There's no way to say, well, you know, that's that's just that guy. You know, he I mean he, you know, he's acting bad, he's acting wicked, but that's his life. You know, he can do whatever he wants to. That tends to be the way we think in 21st century America, isn't it? You know, he can do whatever he wants. That person can do whatever they want. That's their life. That's their decision. They can do whatever they want. And Paul says, that's not the way it works. We're all part of one lump, one lump of dough and a little bit of leaven, a little bit of wickedness, a little bit of malice, a little bit of sin. It leavens the entire thing. And he says, our Passover lamb, Jesus, has already been sacrificed. He's already been killed. This is our Passover feast. And remember what the Passover remembered. It remembered the judgment of God passing over the Israelites because the blood was on their house. And they had to eat in their homes unleavened bread, get all of the leaven out. And Paul says, we are celebrating this festival. We're celebrating this feast. And and there's no place within the Passover people of God who are celebrating what the Passover lamb has done for us celebrating the passing over of God's judgment. There's no place for even a little bit of leaven because a little bit of leaven, a little bit of sin, a little bit of malice, a little bit of evil, it leavens the entire lump. So this idea that we're just individuals and what you do in your personal life has nothing to do with the rest of the body, nothing could be further from the truth. Everything you do, Everything I do impacts and affects everybody else. We're all, 
we've, we've gotten used to saying in 2020, the whole world says we're, we're in this together. But as Christians, that's always the case. We're always in everything together. Now, now of course, there's all kinds of things that, you know, I, I may like a certain kind of movie and you like a different kind of movie. I may like a certain kind of music and you like a different kind of music. I like to eat this food and you like to eat a different food. I like sushi and you think that's disgusting. What, whatever it is. So there's going to be diversity and variety and differences of opinion. But when it comes to sin and things that are objectively wrong, according to Jesus, according to the gospel, according to scripture, we can't, for the sake of the entire family, for the sake of who we are and what we're striving to be and to do, what we're called to be by Jesus, we can't allow any sin in ourselves, in our own personal lives, or within the, the whole body. And so he says that this, uh, this leaven, this sin, must be cleansed from among them. Look at verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, he specifies, not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since you'd need to go out of the world. But I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now, <laughs> We could spend so much time, we don't have time to, to really give this its due here. But he says, not only must we, this is the entire context, must we discipline one another and hold each other accountable. And when necessary, when someone is unrepentant, to remove our fellowship from them and not to associate with them so that they are ashamed of their choices and choose rather to be part of the body of Christ rather than choosing sin. There's a time for that. But he says, now listen, when I'm telling you all of this, I'm not saying that it's your responsibility to discipline or disassociate yourself with people in the world that are sinning. He said, when I said, don't eat with those that are sexually immoral or those that are idolaters or those that do all of these other things, I'm not saying the people in the world that are doing those things, because then you would have to remove yourself from the world. He's saying, this is a matter of in the body, with our family, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the standard to which we hold each other, but it's not the standard to which we hold the world because they're not part of the, the family. They're not part of the body. Our job is not to discipline or... Um, discipline is probably the best word, discipline those in the world. Look at verse 12. He says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, again, there's so, so much here. You know, we, we have to recognize that it's necessary for us to discipline one another. And that's an idea that tends to not be very popular. I don't like to think about that idea. The idea that there may come a time in any given church family when the elders, when the leaders recognize that this person hasn't responded to calls for repentance and obedience and faithfulness and that they, they have to be disciplined. I don't, I don't 
cherish that idea. That should be a heartbreaking idea. Of course, it's not something we cherish. Of course, it's not something we want to do, but it's something that is necessary at times. But the other side of that coin is that we don't do that to people in the world. But that tends to be the very thing that we tend to do, isn't it? That we, we become sort of an angry mob. We get involved in these culture wars where we're trying to angrily make sure and force people in the world to do what they're supposed to do. Paul says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? God is going to judge all of them. Our job isn't to punish them. Our job isn't to discipline them. Our job isn't to hold them to the standard of Scripture. Our job is to invite them to be part of this family, but this standard of behavior really is one that we're holding each other to. Let me give you an example, a metaphor. It would be like a coach, a coach saying to one of his players, listen, young man, listen, son, you're being lazy. And unless you stop being lazy and start working hard, you're off the team. You can't be part of this team if you're going to continue to be lazy. We would look at that and we'd say, yeah, that, that's appropriate, right? It, it's appropriate for a coach to say that to his player. It's even appropriate for the whole team to come together and say, listen, you're not pulling your weight around here. And unless you pull your weight, unless you work hard, unless you do what you're supposed to, you can't be part of this team. That makes sense. It's appropriate. But it would be inappropriate, highly inappropriate for a coach to walk up to a random kid on the street and say, you're lazy. You can't be on my team unless you work hard. If you work hard, I may let you on my team. You need to stop being so lazy. That would be highly inappropriate. That would be even be abusive for a coach to walk up to and try to discipline someone who isn't a part of that team. So here's a, an idea I want us to think about. Discipline is only appropriate in the context of community. And the other side of that is that community can only be maintained when there is discipline. Team doesn't really maintain being a team if there is no discipline. If anybody can kind of come and go as they please and do whatever they want and wear whatever they want and act however they want, then they're not really a team. They're only a team. They're only a team when there is a sense of discipline, when there are rules, when there are boundaries. When someone says, you can't do that and be part of this team. If you're a part of this team, you do these things. If you do these other things, you can't be part of the team. A team can only be a team if there are some sort of boundaries, if there are some sort of rules, if there's some sort of discipline. But that sort of discipline is only appropriate within the context of community. You don't go up to people that are outside of the community and start berating them for not holding the standard of that community. Now, that's not to say that God isn't going to judge those outside. Paul says he will. God will judge them. But that's not our job. Our job isn't to angrily get mad at the world for being the world. To say, why are you acting this way? You shouldn't act this way unless you do these things, whatever. But there is an appropriate place within the church to hold each other accountable. But what we tend to do is get that backwards, don't we? we? We tend to be sort of undisciplined or apathetic about certain sins that are more prevalent within the church than we are, and I don't mean here at McDermott Road, I just mean in general, 
In general, we tend to be more apathetic about sins that happen within Christianity and more angry and upset and concerned about sins that happen out there. And that's exactly the opposite of what Paul is telling us to do. It's exactly the opposite of what the gospel is calling us to do. We ought to be more concerned about the sins that happen in here, first of all, in me, in in ourselves as individuals, but then also as a a family. In fact, I, I might say that we should be more concerned about a gossip in the church than we are a murderer in the world, right? God's going to take care of the murderer, but our job, our responsibility, our calling is to take care of the gossip in the church. Our job is to discipline the things that are going on in the church that aren't supposed to be going on. Here's how we might say it. A disciplined community of disciples is what we ought to strive to be. The church ought to strive to be a disciplined community of disciples. A disciplined community of disciples, of people who are following Jesus, disciplined ourselves personally, but also disciplining one another, holding each other accountable, encouraging each other, calling each other to repentance at times, admonishing each other. Now, again, we we obviously have to balance this with everything we've been saying in this series about patience and kindness, about understanding, about realizing that there's going to be differences of opinion and all of those things. But we also have to be a disciplined community of disciples who are inviting the world to experience the benefits of discipleship and community. It's one thing for a coach to say, here's the standard I'm going to hold all of my players to. And then to turn to someone who's not his player and say, hey, we would love for you to be part of this team. We want you to be part of this team. He's not going to beat that person up and tell them how lazy they are. But when they're a part of the team, he is going to hold them accountable. Hold them to the standard that the team has for behavior and and for how they play and how they live. The same is true in the church. We have to be a disciplined community of disciples where this is a community that is committed to following Jesus and to doing the things things and living the way that's consistent with the gospel, that's consistent with what Scripture teaches. And then as it pertains to the world, our job isn't to get mad at them for being the world. Our job isn't to punish them for being the world. Our job isn't to discipline them for being undisciplined or discipline them for living in a way that's not consistent with the gospel. They never agreed to the gospel. They never agreed to follow Jesus. But our job is to invite them to follow Jesus. Invite them to experience the benefits of discipleship and community. See, that's that's what we're saying, isn't it? We're saying, I'm a follower of Jesus and I want you to be one too. We're not saying it's always easy. We're not saying that there's not things we have to give up. We're not saying that there's not a standard of living that we have to be conformed to. All of those things are true. We we do have to sacrifice things, but what we're saying is it's worth it. It's worth it. The benefits of being part of this church family, of being part of the church family throughout the world, the benefits to following Jesus are worth it. And we're inviting people to experience that. We're inviting them to experience the benefits of discipleship and community. But we get caught up sometimes 
and trying to punish the world for being the world. That's not our job. Our job is to invite them to experience the benefits of discipleship and community. But within the community, we have to be a disciplined community of disciples, of people that take seriously the things that Jesus, the things that the apostles, the things that Scripture teach us to do. This is what we have to do. This is the way we have to live. Uh, So our new series that we're going to start next week, God willing, uh, is going to be about being disciples, about following Jesus, about how Jesus, in the life that he lived and the life that he lives currently, presently, how he teaches us to live our lives, how his perfect example teaches us to deal with whatever might come up, whether that be temptations or whether that might be struggles, things that interrupt our plans, interrupt our life. Jesus teaches us how to deal with those things. And as we all struggle to follow Jesus, we ought to be, we must be, and we are encouraging each other to be faithful in following him. That's what it is to be part of a community, to encourage each other, to help each other, to admonish each other, and at times even to discipline one another. That's what it looks like to be part of a team. That's what it looks like to be part of a family. That's what it looks like to be part of a church. That's what it looks like to be part of a community. And then we turn to the world and we say, listen, we want to share with you an amazing experience, the experience of discipleship and community. It's worth it. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a man that's in a field and he finds a treasure And the treasure is so valuable that he sells everything he has so that he can buy that field and gain that treasure. It's worth it. Whatever it is we have to sacrifice, whatever it is we have to give up, to be part of this, to have family, to have community, to belong, to be accepted, to be loved, to be cherished, to be helped by each other and by the Lord, it's worth it. And we have to help the world to see that it's worth it because following Jesus really is. Let's, let's have a prayer before we close. Father, we, we thank you for this time that we could share together. Lord, it's not a, not a pleasant thing or a fun thing to think about discipline. Father, we've all struggled and we all continue to struggle with sin. And Father, we pray that when that sin is brought to our attention, that you will give us the, the faith, the courage, the humility to repent of our sin and to follow Jesus, to swim against the currents of the culture and the world and to swim with Jesus, to follow him no matter what it cost. Father, we pray that you help us to encourage each other, to build each other up, to pray with each other and walk with each other and help one another. Father, help us not to get angry at each other or angry with the world. Help us, Father, to be a disciplined community of disciples And help us, Father, to invite the world to experience the benefits of discipleship and community. We thank you, Father, for the Spirit who lives within this community. And we thank you, Father, for Jesus who is saving us and who has given us a hope and a family and a future and a a love that is indescribable. Father, we thank you for these blessings and we pray these things in his name. Amen. I appreciate you all. Thanks for being with me tonight. I I really look forward to next week and we'll start a new new series of lessons then. We'll see you then. Have a great week. Bye-bye.